910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We are cruising along in the book of Judges in our series, Sin-Filled Nation. Chris, if there's one thing I bet our listeners have noticed is that this book gets more and more twisted the further we get into it. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And never is that more true than we're going to see in these last few episodes. You know, there's some people in the Bible that we all love and consider heroes of the faith. Joseph, David, Daniel, to name a few. And then there's some that have us (laughs) scratching our heads wondering, what was God thinking choosing them? Samson definitely fits into the latter category. A womanizing, egotistical, narcissistic, arrogant hothead is not who we want to picture God using and choosing as a leader of his people. But God does choose him. I believe God's making a point in picking Samson. First and foremost, God will choose whoever he will choose, and he will use whoever he will use. As sovereign creator and sustainer of the entire universe, as R.C. Sproul says, there's not one rogue molecule. He's free to do as he pleases, and we have no standing to question him. But there's another, yeah, there's another point, though, I think we need to think about. No one is so far gone that God can't use them and redeem them. And that should be a huge encouragement to all of us. I think you're exactly right. That should be an encouragement. And whether it's those we consider strong in their faith or those who are hot messes, every person in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, who became a quote unquote hero, did it not because of who they were or what they did. They became heroes of the faith because of what God did through their lives. Just as it's never about us, the stories of people in the Bible are never about them, even though that's how they're taught sometimes. They're about what God is doing, how God is redeeming a people for himself, and ultimately everything in the Bible and everyone in the Bible points to Jesus. As we said in episode one, when we were giving background on the book of Judges, the narrative in this book takes place over a period of roughly 275 to 300 years. Three centuries of Israel's repeated failing to obey and honor God, three centuries of living among and mixing with the pagans, and three centuries of repeated syncretism. And while the sordid details of this book can leave us shaking our heads, the book has two major purposes. First, for the readers to see their need for a true savior, and second, to point us to that savior who's obviously Jesus. Right. And this week, we're going to look at Samson. Since the first judge, Othniel, the judges have become more and more flawed and have compromised their faith more. There's a downward spiral with each successive judge, with Samson being the worst of all. You know, Samson's life has been made into quite a few movies. It was a stage show at Sight and Sound, and we can see why. Samson's one of the most complex characters in the Bible. He's a womanizer. He's violent. He's selfish. He's arrogant. He's immature. He's a sex addict. Yet he is one of God's chosen, and God does some amazing things through him, despite himself. Right. You know, and despite being the only judge that God called before birth, he does accomplish less than the other judges because of his disobedience to God. But still, um, still, God uses Samson's selfish, narcissistic, disobedient life to fulfill his purposes. He does. Well, let's start reading. Let's read Judges 13.1. It's a key theme that's repeated throughout the book of Judges. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So here's Israel once again doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. You know, this phrase, along with the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, or as some translations say, did as they saw fit, is repeated throughout the book of Judges. When you put these two phrases side by side, the major cause of the problem of Israel is revealed. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, Chris, what's this tell you? It tells me that the Israelites were using their own determination, not God's, of what was right and what was wrong. And it also tells us what happened when we do what is right in our eyes and not what the word of God says. Doing what's right in your own eyes is you. You defining what is sinful and what isn't. And to put this in perspective, this is like saying to criminals, you can decide if your actions are criminal or not. And as we see through the Israelites, yep, it's no surprise at all that when people do what's right in their own eyes, not using scripture as authority to guide them, it leads to doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Important point. And as we read in the verse, the story of Samson begins by God once again, raising up another enemy, this time the Philistines who oppressed the Israelites for 40 years. So we see the first three components of the cycle. Israel rebels, God is angry, Israel's oppressed by their enemy. For the first time, though, Israel does not cry out to God for deliverance. They seem completely content living under Philistine rule. They show no evidence of wanting to be delivered. And that's a good thing because they're about to get a judge who shows no evidence of wanting to deliver them. It's very fitting. <laughs> so let's talk about that other first that we mentioned earlier. Judges 13, 2 to 5 says, There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is the first time we see God telling a mother that her not yet born son will be the judge of Israel. But there's something common in this account with other accounts in scripture, and that is God using a child that should have never been born as a deliverer for his people. We see it with Isaac, Samuel, John the Baptist, and ultimately Jesus. Yeah, like Mark 10, 27 says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus is talking about salvation in this passage. He makes it clear that it's impossible for man to save himself and that it's God who does the saving. It's the same reason, like we talked about with Ehud, and the same reason why God turns most of the beliefs of the world all the way upside down. It's so there's no doubt that it's God that's doing the mighty work and not man, and that it's God who gets the glory and not man. Okay, so let's talk about this Nazarite vow that's mentioned in the passage. We first see the vow in number six, one to 21, and we don't have time to read it all, but it basically has three components. No strong drink or anything from the vine, like wine, grapes, or raisins. No cutting your hair and no coming into contact with a dead body or carcass. Usually the Nazarite vow was taken for a temporary period of time 
But God tells Samson's mother that Samson would be under this vow all his life. And that's important to the story. It is. And just a quick note, Jesus was not under the Nazarite vow. I want to throw that in there because people sometimes get that confused because Jesus is called a Nazarene. And a Nazarene just means that he was from Nazareth. That's why Jesus didn't have to adhere to the Nazarite vow and he was able to go near dead people. So I just want to clear that up. Good point. So, okay, moving on, Samson's mom runs and tells her husband that she's been visited by the angel of the Lord, and she tells him everything that he said. Samson's father, Manoah, prays to God, asking that the angel come back and show them how to raise this special child. That's pretty cool. And God grants this request, and the angel comes back and tells both of them what he had told Samson's mother previously. Manoah asks if the angel will stay for a meal. I'll take it from there with scripture from Judges 13, 16 to 23, which says, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on the ground with their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. So Chris, Manoah and his wife realized that this was not an ordinary angel they were dealing with. And I know why you're laughing. (laughs) I know. I think I'm laughing because she has to tell him that. But... (laughs) You know, you can see why you'd be shocked. So I won't, you know, I won't bust on too hard. But this wasn't an angel. It was a theophany, which means pre-incarnate Jesus coming to earth. And there are several hints that tell us this. Verse 16 says, you know, the angel wouldn't eat a meal with them, uh, but told them to offer a sacrifice to God. In verse 17, the angel doesn't correct Manoah when he says that they want to honor him. If that had been a regular angel, he would have said that the honor belongs to God and not him. And we see that other places. In verse 18, he tells them that they would not be able to understand his name. Verse 22 says Manoah and his wife realize he's God. Manoah thinks that they will die because they've seen the face of God. And now all of that points to it being pre-incarnate Jesus that appeared and not just a regular angel. That's right. And like we were chuckling, while Manoah fears they're going to die because they've seen the face of God, that is a correct belief. And that comes from Exodus 33, 20. But his wife has a little more sense here. She sees their offering was accepted. And therefore, what God had said about their son beginning to save the Israelites from the Philistines would come to pass. You can't have a baby if you're dead. No, you can't. You know, and Samson is born. The name Samson means little son son child or bright child. We're told that the Holy Spirit began to stir in him. A lot of people picture Samson as this huge man with bulging muscles, like Dwayne Johnson maybe. 
But as we're going to see, people couldn't figure out what made him so strong. So he probably isn't all that jacked at all. Let's clear up another misconception. Some think that Samson's strength was in his hair because that's kind of how the Bible stories played out a lot of times. But that's not true either. Samson's hair was just symbolic of his strength. And we're going to get into this a little bit more shortly. So, you know, when you read the account of Judges, you see that Samson's strength comes from the Holy Spirit, not his hair. Right. And there's several other verses that show this in other parts of scripture. And just a couple examples, Psalm 28, seven to eight, for example, the Lord is my strength and my shield in him. My heart trusts and I am helped. And Habakkuk 319, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. Right. So moving on to chapter 14 of Judges, we start to see just what a hot mess Samson really is and what little regard he has for what he has you know, been called to do, namely deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. He doesn't even have regard for the Nazarite vow that God put him under. And we are going to see that he breaks all three rules of the vow. But first, he breaks a command from God that the Israelites were not to intermarry with pagans in the land, insisting that he wants his parents to go get him a Philistine woman as his wife. His parents try to talk him out of it, but Samson says in Judges 14, verse 3, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. Everybody so, did what was right in their eyes. That's right. And what was that we said happens when people do what's right in their own eyes and not in the eyes of God? So let's talk yeah. about why did God command the Israelites not to intermarry with pagans surrounding them? It's the same reason Paul tells Christians not to marry an unbeliever. It isn't because unbelievers aren't good enough for us to marry at all. It's also not because we wouldn't be able to love an unbeliever. There's some unbelievers who are more lovable than believers. <laughs> Absolutely. God commands his people not to marry unbelievers because to belong to God and to be a Christian means that following God and for the Christian, Jesus Christ, is the most important thing in your life. When a believer and an unbeliever get together, what's formed is a relationship where the two people involved disagree on the most important thing in life. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And in verse three, when Samson says, she's right in my eyes, or, you know, as some translations say, she pleases me well, it shows that what Samson really cared about was how things look to himself, not how things look to God. Parallel that to the Israelites who did what was right in their own eyes. Samson is the embodiment of a nation of the nation of Israel. In many ways, his actions mirror that of the Israelites. Both Israel and Samson are deciding what's right and what's wrong. Samson chasing after that pagan, you know, woman mirrors Israel chasing after pagan gods. And of course, that's idolatry. You know, Chris, idolatry is often likened to sexual sin in the Bible. We've already read a few passages throughout this study in this book that the Israelites hoard after other gods. But let's give examples from other parts of scripture. Leviticus 17.7 says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. I don't know what a goat demon is. <laughs> I'm not sure either, but you better not whore after it. <laughs> you know, uh, we talk about other examples. The theme of the entire book of Hosea is likening idolatry to sexual sin. Here's a couple of verses from Hosea. Uh, Hosea 1 says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom forsaking the Lord. 
Hosea 4.12 says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff give them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has come and led them astray, and they've left their God to play the whore. I'll do one more from Hosea, because it's the whole book. Hosea 6.10, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Goat demons, a piece of wood. It makes the Israelites seem kind of dumb going after this stuff, but no better than us. No. So this woman Samson wants as a wife is a Philistine. And remember, the Philistines had been oppressing Israel for 40 years before Samson came on the scene. He was chosen as their leader. Jesus told his parents that Samson would be the one to begin delivering Israel from the Philistines. But instead, he wants to marry one. Samson obviously <laughs> didn't mind the Philistines' oppression of the Israelites. And there's another parallel to Israel. As we said earlier, Israel's not calling out to God to deliver them from the Philistines. They were completely happy just assimilating into Philistine culture. They're completely unaware of their enslavement to syncretism and to sin. Absolutely. And this can parallel to us too. When we as Christians are so comfortable in the world that we not only don't call out to God, but we don't see a need to call out to God, there's a real likelihood that we're enslaved and entrenched in grievous sin. But here's something we need to note about Samson wanting a Philistine wife. Judges 14.4 says his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So it gets a little complex now. Samson's marriage to a Philistine woman was from the Lord. God's will's behind all of this to accomplish his purpose. But why don't you flesh this out a little more? Yeah, because the first question somebody's going to ask is, is is God making Samson sin? No, he is not. God may have orchestrated Samson seeing the Philistine woman, but he he isn't forcing Samson to sin by marrying her. He doesn't have to make Samson sin. He only needs to have Samson, you know, see her and leave Samson to himself. Even though God led Samson to the Philistine woman, it doesn't excuse Samson's actions. This is another example of God's sovereignty over everything. It's paralleled with our responsibility for our actions. God will use Samson's marriage to this woman for his purposes, but God did not make Samson marry that woman. It's a complex concept to wrap your mind around sometimes, but it's really, really important that we get this right. Otherwise, we might think that God condones sin when it suits him, you know, and suits his purposes, but that is never, ever the case. He doesn't have to cause us to sin. Never the case. And I'm glad Mm -hmm. you cleared that up. So how did God use Samson's marriage to a Philistine woman for his purposes? Well, for one, the marriage enabled Samson to be able to come and go in Philistine territory whenever he wanted. And we're going to look at the other way shortly. But first, let's read about an incident that happens in Judges 14, 5 to 7. It says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards them roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So in these verses, we see Samson being attacked by a lion. Matthew Henry makes an interesting observation about that, about his run-in with the lion. I'll quote him. Many decline doing the service they might do because they know not their own strength. By enabling him in one journey to Timnah to kill a lion, 
God let Samson know that he could do in the strength of the spirit of the Lord, that he might never be afraid to look the greatest difficulties in the face. David, who was to complete the destruction of the Philistines, must try his hand first upon a lion and a bear, that thence he might infer, as we may suppose Samson did, that the uncircumcised Philistine should be as one of them. And what Matthew Henry is saying is that God gives Samson, like David, success in killing a wild animal to show them that he's with them and to encourage them when they do have to go up against the Philistines. Right. And despite having been strengthened by the Holy Spirit so much, he was able to tear apart a lion. Samson still determined to marry this Philistine woman. You know, it didn't stop him from that. Sometime later, he comes upon the lion that he killed and he finds a honey beehive made in it. Remember, he never told his parents about killing the lion. And without a thought, he breaks one of the Nazarite vows by touching the dead carcass of the lion and eating the honey from it. He makes the offense even worse when he gives some of the honey to his unsuspecting parents and he causes them to be unclean. And he doesn't stop there. Later, he breaks a second of the Nazarite vows when he holds a feast to celebrate his marriage to that Philistine woman. And this feast was basically a drinking party. Normally, when one was under a Nazarite vow and broke one of the vows, they had to go through a purification process. And it tells us this in number six, nine to 12. Samson's now broken two vows, and we don't see any evidence that any repentance or purification process is even on his radar. No, it's not. There's nothing at all. Judges 14 goes on recounting an episode from the wedding feast. I'll read it. Judges 14, 12 to 14 says, Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Samson's riddle here is pretty clever. And he shows that he's very intelligent, just like his name, bright child. However, the quote unquote friendly wager turns unfriendly pretty quickly. The men at the feast couldn't figure out the riddle. So I'll continue reading in Judges 14, 15 to 17. This is the men talking to his wife. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. Samson's wife knew how to manipulate the situation and how to nag her husband until she got what she wanted from him. You know, this tactic works in the short term, but it ends up poisoning the relationship, costing more than it gains. And we need to see that, you know, this is the first hint that the strongest man in the world is no match for a nagging, <laughs> manipulative woman. And, you know, to her benefit, she probably was scared. But anyway, it's also ultimately, this is going to be Samson's downfall. I'll finish out Judges 14. It says, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun goes down, what is sweeter than honey? 
what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who, who had been his best man. So let's talk about this phrase, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have saw We don't use that today. No, <laughs> I don't think that would be PC today. And it's a little no. odd and maybe a little offensive to us, but Samson's not calling his wife a cow, at least that we know of. Instead, he's quoting a proverb. And what it means basically is that they used his own wife against him to solve the riddle. That's what plowing with my heifer means. Right. And another phrase, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, shows us that while Samson may have had no interest in delivering Israel, God did. Samson was only worried about avenging his pride, but the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he's able to kill 30 Philistines. God was not condoning Samson's temper tantrum, but he was, he was using it for his purposes. God used Samson's bloodlust to begin to move against the Philistines. So Samson pays off the bet but he did it at the expense of the Philistines. He killed 30 of them and gave the garments to the people to satisfy the debt. Samson won the battle, but he lost this war. His wife left him and went to one of his groomsmen, the best man. Yeah, when we get to Judges 15, things go downhill very quickly, but we're gonna have to wait until the next episode to explore that. Join us next week for part two of The Hot Mess. Thanks for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for release information and the cover reveal of our new book, The Bible Blueprint, a guide to better understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if you like what you hear on our podcast, please subscribe to our Proverbs 910 ministry channel on Rumble or YouTube. You can also subscribe to the audio podcast on whatever platform you listen on, so you'll never miss an episode. We would greatly appreciate you rating and reviewing us on whatever platform you are tuning in on and consider following us on MeWe, Facebook, or Instagram to get all the latest happenings of Proverbs 910 Ministries, including daily posts, book news, Bible studies, speaking engagements, and more. Have a blessed day, everybody. <laughs>